Welcome to Co-Pilots, the podcast where we watch not just the first episode of a show, but also the second. Some shows just don't have the best pilot episode, and giving that a second chance might just swing your mind. Here we take that chance for you and let you know our opinion on if a show deserves more than one shot. I'm Justice. Alongside me is my co-pilot, Josh. Now, let's get ready for takeoff. Your in-flight entertainment this week will be... Sandman. The Sandman? I mean, I think so. I think it's The Sandman. Mm-hmm. It is The Sandman. I know the graphic novels and comics are, I just... The show is, too. I've seen it is on... It... The... Okay, it's just, like, every time I've seen it, the the is obviously, like, assumedly so tiny, I haven't noticed it. I've seen it on Twitter so much. There's this sand artist that did... Oh, that's dope, though. Have you seen the, the sand? I have not, but it sounds oh, dope. I'll show you it later. So, Anyways. technically, it's Netflix's The Sandman. The Sandman, but I'm never... I Look, I don't even call it DC's or Vertigo's The Sandman. It's Noel Gaiman's The Sandman, so... It's 2022 Netflix's adaptation of the Neil Gaiman graphic novel The Sandman. Yeah. So, I know we talked about it on the in the cockpit. Very briefly. But The Sandman is one of Justice's favorite... It is his favorite graphic novel series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was waiting for you to argue with me, but I know I'm right. No, the other thing that maybe comes close... Beast Boy stuff? No, because he doesn't really have a lot of independent runs. Mm-hmm. So it's it's Teen Titans, and Teen Titans is good sometimes, but also really bad other times. Ugh. Now, the only thing that I guess would probably come close would be, like, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What about Teen Titans could be bad? Or... Maybe some of the uh, Alan Moore Swamp Thing runs. Could it be the time that Slade molested a teenager? Or the time that Robin was raped? Or the other time Robin was raped? No, the other time it was Nightwing who was raped. Oh, Teen Titans. Still Richard, though. Uh, yeah. Yeah, t- Teen <clears throat> Titans gets weird, and then there's the whole fucking Psybeast thing. What, what is Psybeast? So when they did their recent stuff, uh, Future State, when they did Future State stuff, they had a Teen Titans run. And one of the big selling points was that Red X was now in the comics. Okay, I remember this, yeah. And I they, didn't read they gonna, this. They were going to tell you who Red X was, we were going to find out. But it was all set in the future. The Teen Titans did the thing that happens occasionally, where they're no longer the Teen Titans, they're the Titans. And then they're training new teenagers, new Titans, right? Um, some shit goes down, and Cyborg and Beast Boy end up in the same body, and they are Cybeast. That sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, it does. Did they use Potara earrings or fusion dance? Neither. Hmm. Those can be undone. Well, the Potara earrings can only be undone by, like, a god or if you die or something. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's easy enough when you work closely with the Justice League and there are gods on their roster. Fair enough. We're so far off base. So, for this flight, we watched The Sandman. Uh, Netflix 2022, Neil Gaiman. Go watch it. It needs streaming hours to get renewed for a season two. Yeah. So I guess why not just go ahead and start with this? So The Sandman, episode one, Sleep of the Just. So Sleep of the Just opens with a monologue from our main character, whose name is Morpheus. Yes. Or, or Dream. more commonly known as Dream, yes. Or Laura Dream. Or, or The Dreaming. Or Oniros. But it's a monologue about how people think of the waking world as the real world. When dreams are just as real as the waking world is. If not arguably more. And have influence over every aspect of everybody's life, regardless of if humans view them as real or not. And from there, we get a man in a carriage who's asleep. Yes, and he is pulling up to Fonny Rig, a 
mansion somewhere in the countryside of assumedly somewhere in england assumedly someplace like london it's outside of london yeah it is outside of london yes but it doesn't ju- i don't think it directly tells us that not and until it's captioned. episode two yeah. and it is 1916 yes and while we're getting pulled up to that we, we use the old sleeping man as our transitional point yes into the world of dreams where dream himself narrates about how dreams are the way for humans to like release frustration or experience adventure and joy when they don't have those aspects in their life and Mm -hmm. it's this old man sitting on top of a bridge and there's dragons and fantastical creatures waterfalls that don't make sense and all this stuff all around and honestly it's very well done like this show is shot in such a manner that parts of it feel dreamlike yes which is in a way that can't be put into words it's fabulous. And the score, even starting here, and arguably the sound design throughout both these episodes, I won't touch on so much just because it's it's very hard to describe a very good score, in my opinion. But the scoring in the ADR for both of these episodes is fantastic. A good, a, a great score, like a great score is one that is subtle enough not to be description worthy, but powerful enough to influence every way you view every scene. Yes. And that's what this score is. There's one specific moment involving the score that I will talk about. It actually occurs in episode one, and I will talk about it because it works beautifully. Okay, so this man is a... He is Dr. John Hathaway. Yes. As we shortly learn, because when we go to him, he's woken up, and he goes to enter the mansion, and he knocks on the door, and is met by a young child. Whose name is Alex. Yes. And he asks who the doctor is, and the doctor introduces himself and says he's here for the Magus. And that he himself is, he works at the Royal Museum of London as like an artifact coordinator or something. I don't remember the exact. Something on those lines here. Yeah. He's in charge of artifacts. Mm -hmm. So Alex leads Dr. Hathaway through this manor, mansion, your choice of words. It's definitely a It's a mansion, but I like the word manor more. It's definitely a mansion, yeah. Yeah. It's got a name, Justice. It has to be a mansion. True. And What what was the name of the? Fonny Rig. Fonny Rig. That's what it is. So as he's leading him through to where the Magus will meet him, they are walking past a door and we see in and there's a bunch of people in like these dark midnight blue robes and they're just chanting here in the darkness. Here in the darkness. Here in the darkness. Uh, until a... Here in the darkness. Butler walks up here to the door. Here in the darkness. Uh, looks at Alex and says, the Magus will meet him in the study and then closes the door in their face. Yes. And it's also here we get the Magus's name earlier on, actually. Yes. Yes. When uh, the doctor asks for Richard... Roderick Burgess. Roderick Burgess. Yes, that's what it does. Yeah, and Alex corrects him and says he prefers to be called the Magus. Which means sorcerer. Yes. Magus means sorcerer. Alex feels the need to tell us that. So, in the study, the Magus greets the doctor and inquires about a tome that he had been interested in earlier because at the time when he first showed interest the doctor was like i can't give that to you it's part of the museum's collection yes but now the doctor is here to give him this tome because the magist claims that with the tome he can resurrect the dead yes specifically his son who died in the Galepope? the Gallipoli conflict the Gallipoli conflict and the gallifrey ha- conflict <laughs> And Hathaway's son, who died just off of Jutland last week. On his destroyer. They were yes. both serving in the military. Which... Because this is 1916. We failed to mention that. Yes. This uh, is, no, I mentioned it briefly. Oh, this is World War One. I. I think World mm-hmm. War One ended in 1917. I think so. But 
in this interaction, they basically bond over their grief. Though we do learn here that the Magus has only really ever in society talked about his son, the one who has just recently died. Randall. Randall. And he hasn't mentioned Alex to the point that Hathaway, when he's introduced to Burgess, asks him about Alex, basically. He's like, I thought you only had one son. And Burgess goes on about how this all, everything he owns should have been Randall's and that Randall's was his greatest joy and gift. And basically, fuck Alex. I don't need that kid. Uh, Randall was the dopest. Yeah, he's, he's literally, like, in front of Alex goes, Randall was the greatest joy in my life. Mm-hmm. And then he sends Alex on his way after Alex serves them tea. His so, son is just a member of his white staff, basically. Essentially, yeah. So after he gives him the tome, which apparently has spells and magics going back to the beginning of written time. Yes, according to Burgess. They take the tome down to the basement where the cult of people who hear in the darkness scene. Mm-hmm. They start a ritual in order to summon the angel of death herself so that they may use her power to resurrect their sons. Yeah. So as they start chanting that and performing their ritual around a binding circle that they have, we cut over to a place in Germany in 1916. Yes. We see a man in a tan coat, blonde hair, bent over, and we see him pull out a knife and wipe it free of blood. Yes. Prior to this, though, we did get a scene of Dream, Lord Dream, Morpheus, Essentially, getting a suit-up scene. He's putting yeah. he's putting on his mask. Uh, we get that before we even enter the funny rig. Mm, fair enough. Because that is where we like we leave Dream for the funny rig stuff, and then come back here. That's fair enough. So yeah, we get Dream suiting up. He's putting on his mask. He's got. He's getting his bag of sand, and he's taking his raven with him, and they're going to the mortal realm to handle a nightmare. Because sometimes nightmares or dreams escape into the real world, and while dreams aren't really stable in the real world and will eventually dissipate. Nightmares sometimes manage to thrive. Yes. And that's what we're seeing here when we cut to Germany. This man with the glasses and the, the bloody knife is a nightmare. He's called the Corinthian. Yes. And he's trying to talk Morpheus into allowing him to stay because nightmares can thrive here. And after all, nightmares have a place with humans for a reason. And after all, there's nothing stopping them from rolling this place because they're so much more powerful. And Dream goes, no, there is something stopping you. It's me. And, like, he has the most badass, like, appearance here where he he solidifies out of, like, darkness. Not even really solidifies. He stays, like, an amorphous shadow outline. Yes, that's fair. And he goes to use his ruby, his magic gemstone, to Mm -hmm. dissipate the Corinthian. But then suddenly... His form kind of glitches and disappears in a small swirl of sand. Yep. And then we're back in the Undercroft, actually, as it's called. The Undercroft Athania Rig. They never mention that in these two episodes, but that's that's just the name of it, um, comics. And in the summoning circle that the Magus was performing his ritual next to, Dream slams down into it unconscious. And so the Magus has his youngest son, Alex, come over and because he's smaller and more nimble, reach into the circle, pull the cloak from dream get the ruby in the bag and then he manages to lean he himself manages to lean down and pull the mask off of yep. dream well he actually he pulls the robe off gets attacked by jessamy the raven mm, yes that's right and then he pulls the helm off after the raven flies out of the undercroft yes mm-hmm. but the shot where dream slams into the floor they pull up to view it from above and it's just a very like nice cinematographic shot it's really well balanced i he I looks just like really a, like he it. looks like a pool of ink, honestly. Like yeah, a pool of ink in a golden circle, and it's just it looks amazing. The cinematography in this show is excellent. Honestly, thinking back, shows we've reviewed. I think this is the show with the best cinematography. Well, I mean, there was The Witcher. That show had really good cinematography. <laughs> really good use of camera work in that show. 
Look. No, I actually think I think Sandman might be not only like the best use of camera work, but just okay. is it too early to say that this is the best show we, we we've reviewed? I'm gonna go with no. Like I don't think it's way too early to say. That. I think it's appropriately the right time to say it. We're 15 minutes into the episode. This is the best show we've ever watched for the podcast. Yeah. I'm going to go through all the episodes we've watched <laughs> just to make sure. Like, The Witcher had some decent cinematography. The main problem with The Witcher is, like, directorial choices with, like, yeah, scenes. Yeah, editing choices. And some of the cinematography was bad. Like, that fucking horrible Dutch angle that they had. Wayne was very good. Wayne had great cinematography, actually. Like, it... And great directorial choices, like with they, where they chose to cut things and how they chose to go stories. The camera. But mm-hmm. like that's just that's anime. That's different from a di- like. I mean, anime still has a cinematographic lens to it. Money heist. Good, but not better cinematographically. I think a large boon, arguably, to the cinematographic lens for Sandman is that having frames in a comic, especially a comic so well known for its art, does give you like a very good basis on how you should build your frame on camera as well. So I'm obviously thinking... you have to change it and like adjust it depending on like what you're actually doing in the scene because you have full movement, right? But I think it gives you a very good like skeleton almost of like how you want to frame your shots. Thinking WandaVision might be... WandaVision, I'm going to say, this is the second best uh, cinematography we've had, yeah? Yeah, WandaVision. And then this might be the best show we've reviewed. Uh, it's just like the single best show. I would say so. It's up there with WandaVision and Money Heist. Yes. Those would be my other two calls for the best shows we've seen for this podcast. But anyways, we're that's, that's a little bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So they take his stuff, basically, and leave him naked on the floor. And then we have some exposition from Dream. You know, some narration from Dream. Mm-hmm. And it's him explaining how this amateur magician Go. not only imprisoned him, but doesn't also realize how much he's messed up not only the dreaming, but the waking world as well. Yeah, but we don't get a lot of this yet, here yet because the Corinthian first comes to visit. Well, no, Dream explains this, and then we get the Corinthian. Mm. Yeah, and Dream explains that by trapping him, now a sleeping sickness has occurred, which um, is actually a fun yeah, thing that's that right. has basis in history. So yeah, because encephalitis lethargia in the early 20th century i don't know the exact years but it was tell end of world war one the roaring 20s were actually like it it was an ongoing thing during the roaring 20s there was a wave of sickness across the world where people would just fall asleep and stay asleep yes now obviously in this it's much more um magical yeah it's much more magical because not only do some people fall asleep uh he doesn't mention it here but i I don't feel like we need to go into it later when he mentions it again Mm -hmm. that so some people fall asleep and won't wake up. Other people cannot get to sleep at all. And some people fall asleep and are in a, like a perpetual sleepwalking stasis. Yeah. And it- according to Dream, this is all because he is no longer in the Dreaming. The Dreaming is not what it once was because As- he is trapped here in the waking world. Essentially, the forces of Dream have gone wild. There is nobody controlling them or making sure they function correctly. But it should be noted, the real life event that this is referencing is also the basis for famed slasher film character Freddy Krueger. Yeah. His yeah, entire it's, uh, it's basis... basis of Nightmare on, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, he his entire basis is the sleeping sickness, mm-hmm. which... God, you know how cool it is? Like, I, it's not cool. It's terrible for all the people that died from it. And, but, like, it's wild, like, in history, how we have these, like, sicknesses that have never occurred since. And, like, as far as we know, documented wise, never occurred before, but just globally happen and then stop. There's the sleeping sickness, there's the dancing plagues, like, 
all that shit is oh yeah it's fucking crazy neat but crazy but yeah sorry i'm I'm going off on a tangent you're fine I, i'm terrible about that so but, uh here though is when the corinthian shows up to talk to mr burgess yeah to talk to the magus corinthian basically shows up and he he appears in the manor in like behind the magus while he's doing something else well we see him pull up in a car walk in yeah and the magus he's talking to him and the corinthian mentions the bean trapped in the basement he yeah i know i know what you have i know what you have in your basement and the magus assumes he wants to be blackmailed and then as he's talking to the corinthian he says something vaguely insulting to the corinthian i don't remember exactly what and the corinthian is suddenly on the other side of the room yeah sorry that's what happens he teleports across the room and the corinthian explains that you have one of the endless trapped and burgess is like a god he's like <laughs> much older than gods more powerful too yeah because the magic is like the endless what are they and corinthian goes death has a family desire you didn't think death was the only one did you destiny desire and then before he can finish naming them all Burgess just goes well which one do i have and the corinthian says dream what use is a god of dreams and corinthian replies not a, not god. a god older more powerful and then the corinthian gives him tips on how to contain dream put him in a glass ball Make sure nobody breaks the summoning circle. And most importantly, nobody can sleep in his presence. Everybody has to do meth. Yeah, he tells him about forced march tablets, which were basically meth. Not exactly, but basically meth. I mean, if we're talking about German forced march tablets, they were meth. Germany invented meth during World War II. World War One. Yeah. I don't remember which. Germany invented what we call meth. Well, I mean, it's 1916, so it would be World War One. Yeah. Although I guess it could have been cocaine at this point. Yeah, I think it was cocaine because I think meth was invented during World War II. Yeah. Anyways, though, from there we see like a bit of a montage of them kind of building it. And then we cut to 1926 after uh, the Corinthian leaves. Because we use Dream's monologue to cut forward. He says something about how the Magus Burgess would come to him asking for things that he could grant no mortal immortality, power, wealth. Yeah, and now he would repeatedly do it. We do see the Corinthian leave, and he has this fun interaction with Burgess. Well, I would say fun. I think Burgess would call fucking terrifying. Yeah. Because Burgess asks us if we'll see him again, and the Corinthian just looks bad at him, kind of chuckles, and goes, you better hope not. Yeah, and this is also where the Magus finds out about Jessamy the Raven and, and the importance of yes. it, because it's at this point, at the end of their conversation, where Corinthian goes, we're being watched, and they're outside in the driveway as Corinthian is prepared to get in his car and leave, and the Magus goes, there's nobody out here, and so Corinthian picks up a rock and throws it hits a tree but scares a raven out of it and corinthian goes ah jessamy she's gonna be your problem you have to deal with her and he's like what a raven is like it's one of his yeah yeah and then the magus asks dream to bring back his son if he can do that because well he makes dreams come true and also he's more powerful than a god yes and then we get dreams exposition of like blah 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 constantly asking me for stuff riches money power his son whatever but he doesn't understand the damage he's, he's doing mm-hmm. to the world while well, he may be becoming wealthy and his cult might become powerful the damage he's doing to the world the sleeping sickness Continues. and this is where we flash into like uh, different hospital rooms and like people stuck in sleeping sleepwalkers yes. but this is um, all done through a newspaper paper that we then flash out of so there is one vaguely important thing here doesn't seem super important if you don't know the comics that's true because when we first hear about it we see a family walk into a room and their daughter who they call unity is asleep and won't wake up we also see a dollhouse unity kincaid is a character who become important later in the story yes and we see her again in the update she's in the background she's not the focus but she's there so we go from that flash to all the people still experiencing the sleeping sicknesses. And we go from that through the newspaper. Which Alex Burgess is reading. 
and he is now being reprimanded by the head of staff. Well, I'm gonna say he's now a young adult. Yes, and he's being reprimanded by the head of staff at this party that the Magus is throwing. Because instead of doing apparently the job he has, which is seemingly to be a coat jack and doorman, he is reading a newspaper. Yeah, and the head of staff is like, "Hey, don't let your father see you reading." But like, I don't care, essentially. And so. Alex takes the coats that he was given, throws them aside somewhere, which is hilarious. Yes, he just throws them on the chair, and then he walks outside. And, and he, the front line is fucking filled with people trying to get inside. And it looks like his job is to be like, hey, all you fuckers can't come inside. No more no room. More room. Um, except he's much more passive about it. He's like, sir, sir. And then he's like, um, ma'am, there's no more room inside. We can't have any more. Like, he's super passive and like... Yes. Which makes sense with the life he Oh, no, has. yeah, but, like, this causes one of the guys who he's telling we can't have any more people in the night to be like, oh, the Magus says, who are you to speak for the Magus? To which a young woman walks up and he's like... So the young woman comes up and she says, he's the Magus's son. And I think she calls him a fucking git. Yeah. And it's like, I bet he could turn you into, like, I think she says, like, a frog or a, new, or a lizard or something. She's like, a reptile, basically. And the guy looks scared and affronted and he's like, oh, oh. Um, can we come back tomorrow? He asks her. And so she looks at Alex and is like, can they? And Alex goes, only if they bring cash. Yeah. Her specific threat is that uh, he could probably make you infertile. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like anchors your uh, descendants and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he thanks her and she's like, I don't know why you're thanking me. I bet you can do magic. And he's like, not really. And she's like, well, you, you have more power than you think. You can get me in to see the Magus. And he does. Yeah, which is hilarious. He's like, he's like, nobody could come in. And she's like, yeah, nobody could come in. Can I come in? Yeah. And we know that she sticks around because the next morning we see Alex is tasked with cleaning up and we see Ethel. We learn her name at the very end of their interaction. Uh, we, we don't see her right away, actually. Uh, Alex is cleaning up and we see two of the guards who were downstairs complaining because the guys who were meant to replace them have not shown up. And Alex is just like, I can go watch the entity if you want to... Yeah, and the guys, like, share a brief look of, like, man, we probably shouldn't, but fuck it. And, like, see you tomorrow, Alex. Because they've been waiting for a half hour for the guys who are supposed to take yeah. their shift. and this job is creepy as fuck, and also, like, fuck that, man. No one wants to work longer than they have to. Yeah, 100%. And also, like, they're also having to dose on, like... Fucking meth? Or cocaine like, or something, yeah. Yeah, not, not a good time. So Alex heads down, and he starts talking to Dream in the bubble. Yeah. And Dream hasn't responded to anyone. He's just stone-faces everyone. But Alex is just like, could you do what my father wants? Could you bring Randall back? I know he'd let you go. Like, if you could just give him something, anything, he would let you go. Or at least I know I would. And obviously his father catches him here. Yeah. But the only part his father hears is when Alex is like, I'd let you go. Then Burgess says, would you now? And we cut to him in the study, throwing Alex roughly onto the floor and goes to start beating him with a cane when Ethel walks in. And then he's still about to hit Alex anyways, but there's a pecking on the window and it is Jessamy. To which the Magus is like, that stupid bird. And I've been trying to kill it for a fucking decade now. And Ethel's just like, surely you haven't. It has to be a different bird. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then I'm Alex, the Magus. Don't doubt me. And then Alex is like, it can't be the same bird. To which Magus is like... He told you to t- say that, didn't he? He's like, no, no, he didn't say anything. And then the Max is like, prove it. Kill the bird and shoves a gun into his hand and a satchel of ammo. Yep. And so I don't know how much time passes from here to the next, but yeah, Alex is now walking around the grounds with a mm-hmm. 
With it. I think it's a shotgun. I would assume it's a rifle, given later when he uses it the distance. That's fair. And the fact that there's not a spread on it. I mean, and it's a longer board barrel. You can have a shotgun without spread. That's yeah, what, yeah, yeah. That's what slug is for. Like, definitely could be. Honestly, you should be using birdshot, but he doesn't seem to later. And also, birdshot wouldn't make a bird blow up. Yeah. But anyways, he's walking the ground, and he meets, assumedly, a gardener of some sort. Paul. Yes. And it's not obvious here yet, but Paul and Alex like each other. Yeah. Honestly, I would say, like, if you definitely don't know anything about it before, it's kind of possible to read that maybe Alex likes Ethel, which is weird because she definitely fucks his father. Yeah, 100%. Like, we, we very much learned that because... It's not... It's, we'll get there. Because Yeah, it, it's very soon after this. Paul and Alex meet. They have a meet-cute. Mm-hmm. Then... We exit out of the manor, the mansion, and we see that the door's open, and then we see Jessamy flying around. And Jessamy flies into the mansion house, basically spies on the, the Magus while mm-hmm. he lights an incense or something. I'm not quite sure what he does I think here. he lights a pipe. Okay. And then Jessamy, the raven, steals a Strike Anywhere match, a white phosphorus tip yep. match, strikes it on a banister rail, and then... While flying down to the Undercroft? Oh, she's... Flying she, towards the Undercroft, sorry. Sets the hall or living area on fire. It looks like a chair in the study that had some papers on it. Yep. And then, using that as a distraction, flies down to the Undercroft. Yeah. Where she starts the guards pecking run off on, trying to set on the fire. Where she starts pecking on the glass trying to get it mm-hmm. to open up. And this entire scene is the one I wanted to talk about because it is really, really well done. From the moment we get out the door and we start seeing Jessamy, we get this kind of building music, like almost heroic or triumphant. Mm-hmm. And when Jessamy lands inside the house, like for the first time since leaving 10 years ago, assumedly, Jessamy lands on a banister and we see Dream look up in his cage, basically. He's got a sphere, technically. Yeah. And we're getting a build and it's building this entire time where we see Jessamy flying through and outwitting these humans. When it gets down there, it's building to this big Christian joke. Dream has stood up. He has like a slight smile on his face as Jessamy's pecking at it. And then Jessamy just bursts. Blows up. Because Alex has downstairs and has just shot Jessamy. I have a question. Yeah. Can Dream see through the eyes of his ravens? Because it feels like it in this I, scene. I don't particularly remember. I know that the ravens are messengers between the dreaming and the waking world. They can move between. But I don't think he can see through it. Yeah, this sequence of events in particular. I believe he can feel it because it is part of the dreaming, which would be why he could sense it was above him. That's fair. Okay, that makes sense then. But yeah, Alex... To prove his loyalty to his father, blows the bird up with a shotgun. Yeah, and his father comes downstairs, and his father isn't really happy about the bird. He's pissed that Alex shot a gun near the glass sphere. Yeah, yeah, he's not like, oh, thanks for getting that bird that I've spent over a decade trying to shoot. He's like, you're a fucking moron. What if you had hit the glass? So he rips the gun out of his hands and commands Alex to clean up the bird. Yep. All the while, Dream is, like, staring daggers into Alex as he does this. Yeah, because he just killed a person. Yeah. So from here, we have Alex and Paul talking again outside. Sometimes pastor don't really know how much. And we hear like glass shatter in the mansion. Yep. And Alex looks a bit confused and then tears off towards the mansion. Yep. So Alex then runs into Ethel. Well, he's running towards the study and he hears his father angrily storming. So he just fucking hides. Yeah. Makes sense. And then he goes into the study where he finds Ethel crying in front of a mirror. Yes. Maybe it's not the study. It's it's a room. Yeah, it's a room. I it's not the study. Yeah, because he goes to like like what looks like a trophy room area. But Ethel's crying, and we find out that she's pregnant with the mm-hmm. Magus's son. Yeah, and Alex is like happy for her. He's like, "That's wonderful. That's great." And she tells him the Magus wants her to get rid of it. In fact, he's calling the doctor right now. And so instead, she steals a whole bunch of stuff and leaves. Yeah, she steals the helm, the ruby, the sand, and two hundred thousand dollars in cash. 
1926 money. Yeah. Or probably like 1927, 1928 money. It's hard to know. 1926 was the last definite year. Yeah. And she disappears into the night. Yes. So the Magus is pissed when he finds out and he goes to Dream to try to get Dream to do his dirty work for him. He tries to convince and manipulate Dream into going after Ethel because he wants her dealt with and she stole Dream's items. Yeah. The funny part here is he's phrasing it as like, oh, she stole these things from you. But technically the Magus stole those things from him. Yeah. And she just stole him from the Magus, so like... Mm -hmm. So, in this interaction, Roderick tells Dream he'll free him to go get his items, as long as he promises not to hurt him and ensure they are well, and give him wealth and immortality and basically everything he's wanted. And Alex comes down there with him, and they're exchanging some words. Alex is basically, stop, you know, it's not going to do anything, just like, just let him go, basically. It's dumb. And Roderick tells him that he's a disappointment, and that if Randall was here, things would be different. And this is where Alex explodes. He's like, well, Randall's not here. And like, Roderick well, goes That's to- not what he says, actually. Oh. He says if Randall was here, he would hate you just as much as I do. Yeah, that's right. And Roderick goes to hit Alex. With the cane again. Alex kind of catches the cane and shoves back at Roderick. Roderick, being an old man, stumbles back and cracks his head on the ground. Cracks his head on Dream's glass. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then falls to the ground. Yes. And this is where he dies. Because he's an old man and just had his head cracked open. Alex killed his dad, patricide. But to be fair, his dad's a piece of shit deserved it. Mm-hmm. So then in this moment, Alex seems to almost free Dream. Yeah, he goes to free him, but... One of the security guards is like, stop or whatever. What would your dad think? And Alex steps back and stops. Yep. So Alex is then talking to Paul and he's like, my dad is dead. And we fast forward, essentially. Well, no. Immediately after that, mm. we see Ethel with her son. Yeah. So she gives birth to her son, John, who she calls Johnny here, and just tells him that she will make all of his promises and dreams come true because there's no entity to come and sprinkle sand in your eyes and make all your dreams come true like her parents told her. At yeah. not anymore. Yeah, because that entity is trapped in a glass sphere yeah. under some mansion outside of the city limits of London. Yeah. So then Alex and Paul are talking, and Alex shows Paul, takes Paul downstairs and shows him Dream, and once again, uh, they beseech him. Yeah, Alex is like, look, as I don't As long as you want... don't harm me or Paul, I will I, let you go. I literally don't want anything from you other than you not hurting me. Yeah. Just if... You don't hurt me and Paul, we'll let you go. And Dream is like, should I have believed the boy? Should I have forgiven him for killing Jessamy? Probably. I didn't, so I didn't respond. Yeah, he basically does that. And this transition, because the show has done great transitions in every scene, mm-hmm. is it's young Alex at this point talking to Dream, and we focus in on Dream's face as he's doing this narration in his head. And then we turn the camera, and it's an old, old Alex now, leaning against the glass, asking him the same thing. He's like, I didn't ask you for immortality. I didn't ask you for anything. I just wanted you to assure us we would be okay i i literally just wanted to be rid of you he says yeah and as he's doing that paul comes in with a wheelchair and he's like love or dear he says something like an endearing statement that lets you know that they are definitely involved and he kind of gestures to the wheelchair and alex sits and paul turns the wheelchair and yeah alex says this will be the last time i come down here yeah and paul turns the wheelchair and i'm pretty sure purposely he gives a knowing nod to dream when he looks back in a moment scuffs the circle Mm -hmm. so that that the circle's broken and takes Alex out of the basement, mm-hmm. out of the undercroft. And then we're, we cut over to two guards who are sitting there guarding Dream. And it's more modern day now. That It's not just two dudes. It's They have like security outfits, white shirts, but It's a man ups. and a woman. They're just sitting there. It's bright fluorescent light. Pistols. Yeah. yeah. And they're just talking, and the guy basically starts to talk about his vacation plans. Well, no, like, there is a great line before this, yes. The woman's like, what do you think they want with the Dracula? And they're like, why do you call it that? She's like, I reckon it's one of them Draculas. 
What else would it be? And he goes, I, I, I try not to think about it. He's like, well, what do you think about it? He's like, Mallorca, four days or some shit in Mallorca. He's talking about a vacation he has come upcoming. And he leans back and he kind of sighs, so lean closes his eyes. And then his paper slips and he's in a beach chair on the beach. People all around. And, and then we the, see a figure in the distance. It goes from a beach to like a barren desert scape. Mm-hmm. Like we see the sea drain. And the figure in the distance slowly solidifies into dream. And the guard's like, you're out. How did you get out? And draws his pistol. Yeah. And as then, Dream reaches down to pick up some sand. And then he blows in the man's face. Mm-hmm. And as the man opens fire, we cut back to the, the waking, waking world. world. And the woman is yelling I at the man to stop. Say, I always want to say reality, but like. Yeah, no, it's the waking world. And the woman's yelling at the man to stop. And the man is shooting the spear. And Dream is just leaning against it, intently staring at him. I know that this leads to like a, a direct one for one comic book panel recreation. Technically but, almost one for one. It's, it's mirrored, but yes, exactly. And it's it's excellent. It's yeah, so it's well so done. wonderful done. So the man shoots the glass open, and Dream and all this like pent up ener- magic energy that he's been kind of pulse out of it. And Dream floats into the air, arch- his back arches. Well, first he pulls out a hand of the like, stop right there, we'll shoot you. And then he blows sand into their face and they both fall down unconscious. Yeah, and then he arches and it looks almost like an alien abduction scene. Or like a blue mystical wormhole. Yeah, it's so very, it's so very good. Mm-hmm. This scene is so well done. And then we cut to Alex, who's an old man, but is now a boy again. Yeah, we see him, he gets woken up by some sound, he gets up out of bed, walks in the hallway, and when he looks in the mirror on the side of the hall, he sees that it's a younger him, and he seems confused for a moment, but then immediately doesn't realize it anymore, he's just like, this is normal, and then he sees a cat, and he follows the cat. And he follows the cat upstairs. To a dark room that has, like, an ornate wooden chair. And then a figure starts to congeal out of the darkness into the chair, and the boy's like, you, you've escaped, and Dream gets to do cool Dream stuff here. Because he's like, yeah, I've escaped. I've I've been kept in prison for a hundred years. Yep. Do you know the damage you've done to not only my world but yours as well? And Alex is just like, I never wanted to. I I didn't know the damage I was doing, but I also never wanted to. And Dream tells him, then your uh, punishment shall be a paradise. And he traps Alex in his dreams. An eternal sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not eternal. Probably like less than. I, a- I think. Well, I think he says a centuries sleep. Yeah, but, but I mean, the guy's like in his 80s easily. Yeah, he he's not going to live that long. Yeah, I would say he was like maybe 20, 1926. It is now 80, assumedly 2022. It said 80 years later. So is it? Does it say 80 years later? When we cut to him in the wheelchair, yes. I'm pretty sure. I don't <laughs> think it gives us a time there because we just tra- seamlessly transition there. I don't think we had a time thing hmm, maybe because not. that would put us in the early 2000s and we have more modern technology. Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought it gave us an exact 80 years no, later. No, because he also says he's been asleep for over a century later, which means it couldn't be 80 years later because that would only put it at 90 years trapped unless he's being hyperbolic. I mean, it would be like 94 years because yeah. I'm not accounting for the shifting mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it's happening in the modern era. That like makes the modern sense. day. But either way. It could be an issue where like the script, the adaptation, what like in the comics it says 80 years later and. Like I said, I don't think we see a timestamp for this one. We might not. I could just be wrong. I'm, I'm totally fine with being wrong here. Yeah. Like not a big deal. Anyways, though. So then we briefly see the Corinthian and he seems to notice something and then we're kind of away from him. And we see Dream going back to the Dreaming. Oh, it should be noted that when we do see the Corinthian here, he has a dead body behind him that he's yeah. cut the eyes out of. We see him sitting at a table and there's a dark like track coming from the corner of his eye. He wipes it. And he's like, uh, well, he's free or whatever. And he's like, so I don't have much more time to stick around. And he stands up and walks away. And as he's walking away, we see a young, attractive man who seems to be tied to a chair, completely naked, and both of his eyes are missing. 
And this is where Corinthians says something like, I don't have much time to make the world see like I do. Or... Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Which we do get here briefly, and you see also in the next episode, if you're looking carefully, because we see the Corinthian before he puts his black glasses back on. Briefly in the mirror, if you look well, you have a large enough screen. You can see that instead of eyes, he has teeth. A set of teeth in both of his eye sockets. Teeth for eyes. Yep. But then we cut to dream returning to the dreaming and he is met just outside the gates of the dreaming the main center of the realm by lucian who is the royal librarian yes and we saw the the very beginning of the episode seeing him off yeah she's the one that was helping him like get his gear together Mm -hmm. yeah and she welcomes him back and it's like a lot of people have left and he's like what why and she's like well some of them went to find you and others uh, thought you abandoned us and he's like why would they think i abandoned them and she's like well it's not the first time an endless has abandoned there and she gets cut off by dream who doesn't want to hear it we see in all of its like amazing art the gates of ivory as it's called but i don't think they call it in either of these episodes open up to reveal the dreaming which is it looks like shit now it's, man it's completely ruined and that's gonna be the end of episode one well no. uh, we get a little bit more he's he talks about rebuilding it um but that's pretty much the end of episode one There's... yeah we see him in the like throne room try to use his powers to revitalize and, re- and fix it and he collapses and lucian's like you don't have enough power and he's like okay whatever that's, I will. that's the next episode i thought he tries no because to... we that all leads into the stuff with gregory uh, yeah, yeah, he vows to rebuild it, and he says um, he can't let dreams and nightmares prey on folks in the waking world. Yeah, he vows to rebuild the kingdom yeah. and to bring every single dream and nightmare back into the dreaming. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And that's the end of episode one, which honestly feel like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and give my take because I know what your take is, essentially. Mm-hmm. This feels more like a movie than a show. I this, would agree. This episode feels more like a movie. It's about an hour long. And it's the cinematography is amazing. The score is amazing. Every character's acting is just top notch. There's not a single line where 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 I stopped like where I got taken out of it. Sometimes you have a character deliver a line and you're like, oh, that's that didn't sound realistic or real or like. It's like sometimes it feels like the actor doesn't buy what they're saying, mm-hmm. or sometimes the line is literally just so ridiculous. You're like. That, that's dumb. But that never happens in this hour of television. Now, the next thing I want to say sounds like a criticism, and honestly, you could interpret it that way, but also nothing happens in season, in episode one. Episode one does nothing. Yeah, no, the only thing I would argue it does is it's just established that Dream is powerful, and he is trapped, and because of that, people aren't sleeping correctly. Yeah, between beginning and end of episode one. And then he has three very strong mystical devices that are stolen and gone. Between the beginning and end of episode one, the only actual changes are the dreaming collapses, Dream no longer has his vestments. Mm -hmm. And those two things could be done in like five or six minutes at the start of an episode. This isn't a criticism because even though it's an hour where nothing happens... The groundwork it lays for the rest of the series is immense. I would argue the most important thing it does, despite having so little dialogue and like all of his dialogue being narration to himself. Yes. It builds Dream's character. It builds Dream's character so well. Yes. Because I'm going to let you in on a little secret here because we learn it very, I would assume very early on, like in the series because we have to. Dream, at the very start of all the Salmon stuff, Dream is a petty bitch. He thinks he's above it all, but he is a petty bitch. For example, I can have freedom if I just don't hurt these two, but he killed my raven. While Dream should rightly know the context of the fact that Alex has no fucking idea what the raven actually means, it's just a fucking bird that was here. Yeah, I mean, 
I it, get he's upset because like, like the bird has a name it's and a it's weird, active and it can speak. And it's, it's a, a weird combination, though. It's not just this pettiness. Like you said, it's also the sense that he is above everything else. Yeah, he's because he's an endless. He's an entity above gods, above mortals. There above... was nothing stopping him from being. When the magist is like, if you could give me power, immortality, there's nothing stopping him from going. Oh yeah, just let me out of the circle, and then putting the man into a coma where he believes he has power and immortality. Yes, nothing stop that. That he's keeping his word. He's making all the guy's dreams come true. Like nothing is stopping him from doing that. Well, dream can actively change people's dreams as well. At least in the graphic novels yeah like or influence them in a way where they do come true for them and they are happy with them but he doesn't do that here because there are rules and dream follows them to the t it's part of his problem he is he is a stuffy above it all petty bitch in the beginning of the series like it's ridiculous that he chose to spend a hundred years in captivity when at any point he could have just been like yeah sure i will actively lie to you comas comas all around so so i have one complaint yeah okay obviously uh, i think because uh, i'm uh, very easily getting to my thoughts everything that you said everything i've mentioned it's it's cinematography is great the actors are great the characters are great it looks amazing the look is episode two does a whole i'll look at the look one. yeah yeah my only issue is and i it's not mentioned in either of these two episodes so roderick burgess dies right in front of dream right in front of morpheus yeah in the comics he dies up up in his room from a heart attack yeah Death, Which, his sibling, Death, appears when people die. Yeah. So arguably, Death should appear there. Now, it's entirely possible that Death hid her presence from him. She doesn't because I read somewhere that later, because I was reading an a mm-hmm. article about Death, the character, and the actors. Yeah. And in the article, it talks about how Death later berates Dream for never, like, trying to reach out to her for help while he was trapped. Exactly. So, so like, she she had to have been there to fulfill her job. Yeah. But she definitely couldn't have been. It's a plot hole. It's, it is it's my, a plot hole. It is my one issue with this. And honestly, it doesn't even really bother me. Well, I mean, I would be okay if the show just goes, oh, Death isn't present for every death because... That's literally too much. I mean, I know she's an endless and technically time doesn't apply to her the same way it applies to, but it's still an insane amount. Also, when we do see her in the comics, and assuming when we see her in this, because we definitely will see her, she has a schedule that she has to keep, Mm -hmm. which implies because she is going from point to point and time does pass when her and Dream are walking around in the city and she's doing her job, that she isn't at every death. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She can't be at every death. It's impossible. Yeah. So she just wasn't at his death for some reason. It wasn't specifically important or like specifically needed facilitating in some way yeah also i do like that change not that he died in the undercroft with dream but that alex was the direct reason for his death it does alex had a hand in facilitating his death it does more to build alex as a character yes not that we have a lot of time with alex but honestly it's nice to see that alex gets a tiny bit of he's our primary pov character in episode one yeah yeah yeah. i'm saying we like we don't get more of him after this obviously he is stuck in dreams yeah yeah i don't know if you've already got into what you think of the show i mean you started but i mean i basically covered it that it's fantastic and i love so that means would you watch more of this after episode one absolutely yeah obviously it's based off your favorite works uh me too gaiman is as we talked about in our last in the cockpit gaiman is objectively the best living author on the planet and as much my mind wants to disagree because it's such a bold statement i'm gonna agree with it so it's such a bold statement fight me but anyways on to episode two 
Imperfect Hosts. Oh, I had it here somewhere. So this episode, Dream returns to the palace. He opens the ivory gates. This is actually where he enters and sees that it's fucked up. Well, we opened the ivory gates at the end of the last episode because, yeah. yeah. But I think yeah, this yeah, yeah. is where he beholds it for the first time. We, we see the gates open at the end of episode one, and then we kind of just pick right up there again. And he returns back to the palace of the Dreaming, which is really fucked up. It's decayed. It's crumbling. And Lucien kind of is like, yeah, I kept a diary of everything that was going on for so long but one day the book and all the books no longer had words in them they were all blank and then the next day the entire library was gone and i never found it again and this is where dream attempts to start the rebuilding process of the dreaming well i think a kind of important thing between them is dream almost like commends lucian for staying because he's like a royal librarian without a library and she's like i never doubted you yeah and so he attempts to rebuild the palace but he doesn't have the the force the magic the energy the yeah, to do it because he's been trapped in a... He's been trapped in a marble for a hundred years. Yeah, and Lucian's like, you're not strong enough. You need to rest, eat something, <laughs> maybe rest again, and then try. And he's like, no, I'm just not powerful enough. I don't have my sand or my ruby or my helm. And she's like, where are all things? Like, they were taken. Yep. And he, other than that, I have no and idea. And he says, I'm going to need to consult the three who are one in order to find them. Mm-hmm. And Lucian's like, are you insane? They never tell you what you need to know. Just stuff that you shouldn't know. Stuff you don't want to know. They speak in riddles. And for those unfamiliar, the three who are one is one of the many names for... The Hecate. Or the Oracles. Or the Three Fates. They they are one of Gaiman's favorite pieces of... I would say so, yeah. He, they appear in a lot of his work. They're the only mythological character to make an appearance in the ocean at the end of the lane. Yeah, they're in the ocean at the end of the lane. They're obviously an American god. They're in Sandman. But uh, the Hecate are the crone, the mother, and... The maiden. The maiden, who are the three aspects of womanhood. Yeah, basically. Yeah, within like mythological culture. There's the old bitter crone, the caring mother. The matronly mother, yeah. And I don't... The like... <sighs> Young, passionate maiden, I guess? There's a specific word I'm trying to use here. I don't know. It means to, like, have a bright outlook, but because you're unaware of the world. The naive? Yes, the naive maiden. That's, yeah, those are the three aspects of of the crones. They're also called the crones. That's another term for them. So, from here, dream says he needs to gather things to summon the crones because they won't just come for no reason. Yes. So we see him walk to the dreaming, the physical embodiment of the dream. The lake of, of dreams. The, of dreams in the dreaming. It's more of an ocean, really. Mm, yeah. And he walks down this long, windy pier. This ocean at the end of a at the end of a lane. Yeah. We're, we're like... And Lucien's like, are you sure you'll be okay? And he's like, I am of the dreaming and the dreaming is of me. You think I have forgotten how to find my way in these waters? And Lucien's like, no, but in the time that you've been gone, the waters kind of got dark and choppy. Yeah, and he's, like, he's like, whatever, I'm fine. He reaches down into the water and then the water reaches up and pulls him in. Well, okay, so this entire set... The winding pier, the lake or ocean of wait, dreams. Wait, actually, sorry, before he even goes here, he says he needs to meet the fates, but he doesn't have the magic to summon them. Yeah, we skipped over that. But we'll cut back. I want to talk about this set piece real yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah. So this entire set piece, the ocean or lake of dreams, the pier, the night sky, it's all kind of got like this blurriness, the edging of it, mm-hmm. and it all feels very much like a dream. Yes. And obviously that's the intention, but it does so in a way that like, while you're watching it, it still feels like a show you're watching. It has the dream aspects that you would feel like from a show. Yeah. Like, I- any other show. Yes. But it doesn't do it in the way shows typically depict dreams with the actual like blurred camera mm-hmm. or anything. It's just the actual set 
somehow in practical effects they've made it feel like it the edges of it are blurred yeah and it lends itself very well to this whole concept of being inside a realm of dreams i would agree so from there we move to a sky view of a greener area and we see a large dragon-esque creature that seems fairly rocky and we saw it flying around the dream of the doctor yeah we saw in the very beginning when we saw our establishing shot of the dreaming yes and it flies down and we hear a man yelling at it, Gregory, Gregory. And then it lands on the roof and the man's yelling at it, Gregory, get down from there, you slip and fall and hurt yourself. Which is funny because if a thing that could fly slip and fell off a roof, it can fly. Yeah. It, ha- it has wings. It doesn't have to hurt itself. And then they realize that there's someone coming down like the bridge to their house. Mm-hmm. So he runs over and we see another man and he kind of just taps on the shoulder. He's like, Kane, we have visitors. Yes. And then Kane seems confused. He's like, visitors? Who? And it's Lucian and Morpheus. Yep. And this is Cain and Abel, like the biblical Cain and Abel. Yeah. And they are the keepers of the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets. Respectively. Yeah. And which we don't know anything about those as far as the show goes yet. Yeah. But I don't even know if they'll be important in season one. They honestly shouldn't be. Okay. Um, they, we get more on them in like side stories and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which I would assume we will get at some point because fun fact, Sandman dropped as 10 episodes. Literally this past Friday, the 19th, we got an 11th episode, which consisted of two fairly popular like side stories or short stories that occur in mm-hmm. the Sandman. And I would assume we're going to get more things like that here and there throughout like the next season. Yeah, if we get another season. Yeah. Which, right now, there is no way it shouldn't get another season. But also, Netflix makes bad decisions, so who knows? Like canceling First Kill, which was popular. It was very popular. The amount of streaming hours it brought in was ridiculous. Yes, and I assume its budget was a lot lower than the Sandman's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> do, we, do we want to talk about that real fast? Nah, <laughs> nah, we'll talk about it later. So, Morpheus approaches them and tells them and he has come to take back a gift he has once given them. Yes, and they're like, well, you can't. You can't take it back. You gave it to us. Well, no. No, no, they both agree that it's fine. At first, yeah. At first. And then he explains that he needs to take Gregory. That he needs to essentially eat Gregory. Yeah, because he has to take something that is pure of the dreaming. That's something that he fully made. And Gregory started life as a nightmare, which is a creation of dream. Mm-hmm. So he can take Gregory back. And Kane's immediately like, yeah, you could have Abel instead. Well, no, no, no. Kane goes, no, take me. And, he's like, and then he grabs Abel from next to him. He's like, better, take Abel. And Abel's like, yeah, 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 take me instead. And Dream's like, I can't. You were real people. You don't come from the dreaming. Yeah, you weren't of the dreaming. And uh, Kane says, well, I won't let you. And Dream is just like, I'm you, not asking you. You forget your place. I'm not asking you. I'm asking Gregory. And Gregory acknowledges Dream and allows Dream to assimilate him, basically. Yeah. Break him down into sand, sand and absorb him back into mm-hmm. the Dream himself, the Sandman. Yeah. And Cain and Abel are upset, but Morpheus and Lucian kind of walk off after that. And then Abel wishes Morpheus good luck, and Cain calls him a simpering suck up, grabs a pitchfork, and stabs him through the chest. Because, and we'll get more of it as it goes on. Mm. But the in, in fact, Abel will explain it to us. Yeah. That's right. The man who was just stabbed through the chest and is dead will explain it to us. Cain kills Abel every day. Cain buries Abel. Abel crawls out of the grave. They're in a perpetual state of... They, re- they repeat their story, the story of Cain and Abel, every day. Every day. Over and over for all of eternity. Mm-hmm. So then we see Morpheus at the pier and basically activates the water of the dreaming by pouring the sand that was Gregory into it. Mm -hmm. And as he reaches down, a hand reaches up and pulls him in. And we get more narration from him. And he's like, it's basically, Lucien was right. This is, the currents are a lot faster. The dreams are a lot more wild. They don't seem to recognize their master. So I'll have to show them who their master is. Yes. 
and then he details where he gets the things he needs mm-hmm. and first, what they are. And what, what first, he needs. he needs a crossroads because that is where you meet the crones. Yes, so he gets one from a, a farmer's dream. Yes, a Chinese farmer's dream, and we see a hand reach down from the sky and literally pull a dirt crossroad up from the ground. Mm-hmm. And then he takes. I think you're you're combining the gallows because I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. the crossroads was like an Argentinian farmer, a South American farmer. Maybe the, the gallows are from a Japanese or a so Chinese teenager. It's a Japanese cinephile. Yeah, who a Japanese cinephile. British cinephile. Yeah, and he takes the gallows from from that man's dreams because I think he refers to the person dreaming as a woman. Maybe in that circumstance, he takes the gallows from there though because they like British horror films. P- British period horror films. Very specific. Yes. And he's explained why he needs each of these things. The crossroads are where you meet the fates. The hangman represents like wisdom and such. And so we see him pull up the crossroads. We see Dream standing at the gallows and getting hanged. And as he falls, he falls into like the next dream he needs. Which is a snake because he, it represents- He looks like he's in like a dungeon or like maybe a rookery almost. It's hard he to tell. Got very like barn fillings here. Like a- Well, it had like stone walls and like metal behind it too. Like mm. a metal grate. But the point is there's a snake and he needs the snake because the snake represents the cycle of life and death. And transformation. And so the snake lunges at him and he traps it in his cloak. Mm -hmm. And And then he picks up an egg. He mentions nothing about the egg, but he picks the egg up. Yep. And then once he has all the materials, it's time to summon the crones, the Mm -hmm. the Hecate. And this is, in the first two episodes, the most well done, most beautifully orchestrated scene that this show does. In these first two episodes, this is just peak cinema so good we also get what i know is another exact comic book panel shot which is when we first see the fates as he summons them we see them as a three-headed figure and they split they're like a three-headed ghostly figure almost which is an artistic representation of the fates throughout like mythology like if you look at them especially in like greek mythology you will sometimes see a three-faced woman yeah so they speak in a manner where each one delivers a line separately so when they show us the maiden on her left is the crone, on her right is the mother. When yeah. they show us the mother, on the left is the maiden, on the right is the crone. And when they show us the crone, on the left is the mother, the right is the maiden. Yes. The Circle. implication is that they rotate through, mm-hmm. but like they don't move to rotate through. Yeah. They are all simultaneously the same individual, but different individuals. Yeah. So they welcome Dream, and then... The crone is upset because he didn't help them deal with Cersei. When she was causing problems. And then the... Maiden says, but he's brought such nice gifts. Well, no, then the mother cuts in, because it, it always mm. goes in an order. Yeah. The mother cuts in and says, the past is the past, sister self. And then... So she recognizes separate entities of herself, but that they are also part of herself, hence sister self. And the maiden follows up with, and he's brought such nice gifts. To which... She holds out her hand, and Dream holds out his, and the snake moves along his, down her arm. And the mother swallows the snake. Just after telling him that you will get three questions, you have three questions, and you will receive three answers. No more, no No less. less. And so he asks his first question. Where is his hand? I I had a pouch of sand. Where is it? And they don't actually answer that question. No. They tell him what happened to it, It not where it is. sold in London, most recently to a Johanna Constantine. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, but where is it? And they go, you know the rules. Yes. One question, one answer. And then we go to the mother and he asks what happened to his helm. Well, he asks, where is his helm? Like, he, he specifically asks what happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. What happened and they tell helm? him that his helm was traded to a demon for an object of protection. An amulet of protection. Yeah, the amulet of protection actually says the, the it is a specific item. And then it goes to the crone. Well, it's and, a, and now the helm is in a hell. Like, yeah. They do make sure to mention that part. He asks another question about his helm here, too. Wh- which, who has it? Which like, demon which has demon it? Which demon has it? And they're like, you know, blah, one blah, blah. One question, one mm-hmm. rule. 
And we go to the crone, and he goes, lastly, I had a ruby. Who has it now? And, and they it, tell him that it was passed from a mother to a son. And he's like, okay, but who? Yeah. You know and, you know the rules. One question, one answer. They kind of yell at him. And then they disappear. And they, yeah, they disappear. So mm-hmm. he goes back. Well, actually, Lucien shows up here at the crossroads. Yes. And she's like, you didn't give them the egg. He's like, it wasn't meant for them. Then we cut back to Cain and Abel, and Abel is digging himself out of his grave. Where he finds an egg at the at the foot of his grave. I have seen something. Yeah. My bad. I mean, technically, we both missed something. Honestly, before all of this. Oh, is it is it uh, the Corinthian? Yeah, it's the Corinthian. Yeah, we can. I think we can mention that now because technically this happens before he even goes to Cain and Abel. Yeah, that's fine. We could do the Cain and Abel stuff and then jump over to the Corinthian. So he goes. The egg was never meant for them. And we jump to Cain and Abel. Abel's crawling out of his grave. Where at the foot of his grave is the egg from earlier. Yeah. And Abel picks it up and takes it into Cain's house and goes, oh, thank you, Cain. I Thank you for giving me a present. And Cain says, like, why, why would I, I give you a present? To apologize for murdering me. I When have I ever apologized for murdering you? Well, if you didn't give it to me, then who did? And then the egg starts hatching. Well, Cain's like... Clearly, it was Lord Dream. Well, not yet, because Kane's like, I don't know, like I don't know what's going on. But it hatches out a baby gargoyle, and Kane's like, Oh, okay, it was obviously Dream. He's trying to buy us off. Yeah. If he thinks leaving this on our doorstep will get us to forgive him for yeah. And then it coos, and Kane's like, Abel is like, Ah, oh, it's adorable. And Kane's just like, It is kind of cute. And then Abel's like, I think I'll call him. Irving. And Kane gets mad and goes over to the shelf. He goes, well, first Kane goes, you can't call it Irving. Everyone knows gargoyles always start with a G. And Names start a, with a G. He grabs a book off a shelf and he's like, he names an actual. Ganymede. He names an actual gargoyle from DC's comics. Yes. I don't remember the name of. Then he goes, Ganymede, Gorgon. Garmadon. And he's like, okay, I'll call it Gervin then. And Kane, Kane just it, grabs a hot poker from the fireplace and starts approaching him. And Abel starts around and he's like, Goldie's a good name. Goldie, we can call it Goldie. And then we just see Kane shove the poker forwards. We don't see him stab it into Abel, but obviously. Yeah, Abel is dead. So then Abel wakes up the next morning, digs himself out of his grave. Goldie's there. And he he calls him Irving, and he's like, I, I mean, Goldie, I'm sorry. but I'll call you Goldie for Kane's sake, but in my heart, I'll think of you as Irving. And, like, the gargoyle obviously prefers being called Irving. Yeah. And so he's like, we'll go ahead and, and see how Kane's doing now. Don't worry, he won't kill me before noon. He's not much of a morning person. He hardly never kills me before yeah. noon. He also tells Goldie a story about two brothers who love each other, and the older one never kills the younger one. And they live in the same house, and they're happy. And it's not a story. It's just... Able like talking about what he wishes life was yeah. like so while all this is going on though while dream is collecting his items for the yeah. crones while he's meeting with the crones while kane we and abel see, are dying and yeah. we see murdering. ethel nowadays and she is on the phone with a lot of people calling back and forth because she is fencing art and items yeah art and artifacts and yeah. collectibles and jewelry she's selling a carvaggio to someone she's selling the honja masamune to someone yeah and then she hears like some weird noises and she checks her video feed that shows her the front of her building but nobody's there she checks her hallway and then suddenly there's a man behind her and it is the corinthian and he talks about how hard it was to find her See how she's got most of the world convinced that she doesn't exist anymore well she asks him how he got it and he's like getting in was easy the hardest part was finding you you've done your best to try to convince the world that Ather Crips doesn't exist. And she goes, well, I haven't convinced people well enough. And he goes, well, to be fair, I'm hardly people. Yeah. And she and, goes, so you're one of his then. Yeah. And so he 
tells her the Sandman has escaped. Dream is mm-hmm. out and about, and he'll be looking for his relics, and he'll be coming for you. And she's like, why would he be coming for me? He's like, you stole his things. And so the Corinthian's like, if we had his things, the mask, the ruby, the sand, we could kill him, get rid of him forever. And she's like, well, I don't have any of it anymore. And so they get into this argument where it's not like a direct argument. It's a cat and mouse game. Yeah, the Corinthian's insisting that she knows more than she's letting on. And she's like, well... I sold the sand and the mask in order for my new to life here. get here to America and like f- fund my life. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, what about the ruby? And she goes, the ruby makes dreams come true, but it also makes nightmares come true. Mm-hmm. My son stole it from me and then it stole him from me. Yes. So the Corinthian goes, well, then where is it now? I well, mean, no, I know- she, she tells him that John has it basically. And he's getting annoyed her because he still doesn't believe her. And he pulls out his knife and he's like, seems to be protected to kill her. And she mentions that she doesn't need the ruby. Well, yeah, he's 100% going to kill her because he's like, mm-hmm. oh, it doesn't matter what you say. Once I have your eyes. Yeah, I'll see everything I need to know. Yeah. And Ethel tells him that she doesn't need Dream's ruby or any of his tools to protect her anymore. And she pulls out the amulet of protection. And he is dissipated into sand. Yeah. So the amulet opens and it's an eye. If you didn't notice, it's a... I did not it notice. It opens like an eye and then he dissipates. Hmm. I did not notice. Mm-hmm. Is it the eye of Agnemimum? No. It's the right color. No. It can't control time. Sad mm-hmm. days. So then, from there, we cut to Cain and Abel with the egg and everything. And yeah, after we, we Cain were, kills Abel again, we we're a little bit out of order. And then after Cain kills Abel again, I'm doing, I'm mentioning this part because otherwise, the fact that Ethel changes scenes here, mm, that's she fair. is seen walking into a building and she's greeted as Miss D. Yep, and she's escorted into a room where her son Johnny is. Yep, it's a psychiatric hospital of some type, mm-hmm. very high levels of security. She asks John how his therapy's going and she's trying to talk to him she asks how he is and he's like a little bored and highly medicated and he keeps the best saying, one can do in a prison he keeps saying he's in prison mm-hmm. and she's like no you're not this is a hospital and he's not really talking to her until she says they need to talk about the ruby yeah and then he's all ears he's paying attention but we don't really get that into the conversation yet in fact, i don't think we get the rest of that conversation in this episode yeah and then after that this is when abel wakes up he wakes up this time this mm-hmm. is where he wakes up and tells goldie about his dream with all that and then we see dream and and Lucien back at the pier. And, and Dream is telling Lucien that he needs to go back to London. Uh, yeah. And she's like, didn't you just spend a hundred years there? And he's, he, he looks... Gla- he-, he seems to like kind of glare at her. And he's like, my sand is there. Yeah. A magic user named Joanna Constantine has it. Which if she's anything like her ancestors, she will serve him well. Yeah. And, and, she- and she's like, well... Okay, but you should take a raven. And Dream insists he, also, he will not take any more ravens, not after Jessamy. He also tells her here that once he has his sand back, he's going to go to the hill to get his helmet back. And she's like, uh, that's a terrible idea. Yes. But yeah, she's like, you should take a raven at least. Do me a favor and take a raven. You should take a raven because it can go from the waking to the dream and let me know. And he's like, I do not need a minder. And then he parts the sea or the ocean or the lake, whatever it is, the body of water that is the dreams and descends stares into a dark abyss. Yeah. And that's the end of the episode? No. No. What am I missing? We see the Corinthian reform on the shores oh, of yeah. the Dreaming. Yep, that's Just right. outside the Gates of Ivory. And Lucian's like, oh, great, you're back just in time. The Lord just left again, but he'll be well, back. She doesn't tell him that. Corinthian mentions, it's weird that Dream's not there and such. And she's like, well, he just left again. 
Yeah. And then Corinthians like, I'm not going to be ruled by him. Lucian's like, you should stay. I mean, you're already here. You should stay. And Corinthians like, you don't understand the world that waits us out there. Yeah. And he basically tries to convince Lucian to leave as well. Like, not doesn't really, really try, but he's just like, look, we don't have to be ruled by Dream. And then he dips. And that's the end of the episode. Oh, yes. The Corinthian leaving the Dreaming again. And that, yeah, that's the end. So what are your thoughts on the Sandman as a whole? The first two episodes. It's fantastic. The cast is brilliant. The cinematography is brilliant. The sound is amazing. The CG is wonderfully done. The art, the attention to detail, it's all how do you amazingly feel, done. How do you feel about the gender swapping of characters and the race swapping of characters? I give no fucks. Because I know that was a big issue when the show was in development. People threw such a big giant fucking fit. I don't care. Okay, Lucene is a black woman now instead of a older white man with weird hair. <laughs> Like, the only argument there of why that's not as good is, like, Lucian is another character from, like, a DC comic who is, like, there in the background. I think he told, like, stories and shit. Yeah. Doesn't really matter. He was, literally his existence in the Sandman comics is, I had the ability to use that character and tie more DC stuff together. Cool. I will. Yep. I feel The character is very much still extremely similar. I'm obviously in a similar vibe to you with that. Like, Gaiman was highly involved with the production of the series. Yes. And he's not going to let them make changes that are going to negatively affect the story. And in most cases, the gender and race of a character aren't going to highly affect no. the story. Like, honestly, the biggest change here is the fact that we see so much of the Corinthian. Yeah, which um, I think that might have happened after they cast him and were after like... After they got Boyd Holbrook and they're just like, oh, he's fucking great. He is an amazing Corinthian. And they're like, well, can we rewrite to put more of him in here? And it doesn't do anything negative for it at all. Yeah. Oh, also, I forgot to mention John D is played by David Thewlis, also known as Professor Lupin. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or Ares from Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. Mm-hmm. The, the good Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, but the worst part of that movie. Not yeah. not his acting. He's a great actor, but like... The Ares the, the, bit. The yeah. end yeah, yeah, of yeah. Wonder Woman was bad. I too agree. The show is fantastic. Would obviously watch more. Uh, we'll finish this season off sometime this weekend probably. Yeah, definitely. Be- before Tuesday. Yeah, it's gonna happen. So by the time this episode goes live, I'll be deep in to Sandman. I first am gonna finish Animal Kingdom, but I have eight more episodes of that, not counting the two episodes that haven't come out yet. Yeah. So... Like, now nah, this is going to be fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah, I'm excited for a season two. American Gods is over. Which is sad. But if this is what Neil Gaiman is going to do with the back part of his, like, life and career, is him adapting his stuff, making the best adaptions of novels to television shows ever done, I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm down with that. Like, Good Omens is still getting that second season, which is going to be dope. Yeah, so, here's the thing. Neil Gaiman is actually a curse for for, te- for the television world <laughs> because Good Omens, amazing. American God, amazing. I argue San- that the main reason American Gods ended when it does is we did hit a slower arc in the story and it was on stars and no one wanted to actually pay to watch stars. Sandman, amazing adaptation. And the thing is, these adaptations are not just amazing stories for television, but they're amazing adaptations yeah. of the source material. And what this says is Hollywood could do it if they wanted to they could make a good aragon they could make a good percy jackson yes but but here i think is the point where we can mention something we briefly touched on but didn't actually clarify yes they definitely could the budget roughly for each sandman <laughs> episode though the, the, the budget for the season is like over 500 million dollars yeah, because i think the budget for like each episode is roughly 15 million dollars from what i've seen oh yeah 15 so the budget for the entire season is about 200 million yeah which is an insanity But also, it pays off so fucking much. Like I said, 
Gaiman is a curse for the television industry because he is quite blatantly saying other shows could be this good. Yeah. They could do this work. They just don't want to. They want to cut corners. They want to change the story mm-hmm. in significant ways. And like, yeah, the story in his clearly changes, like we mentioned. Like, I think the biggest change is Alex killing his father. Alex kills his father. John D is in Arkham Asylum. Oh no. But like, these changes aren't big enough to actually alter the plot in a significant manner. Yeah, no, not at all. And in the case of Alex killing the Magus, I think it's actually a positive change because it makes Alex have agency. Alex yes, does not have agency, agency in the comics. No, because Alex is literally just a stooge for his father. And but, then he is a man who is stuck with an entity that he doesn't know how to deal with. And it literally haunts him for the rest of his life. Yes. But here he has agency. He has wants and desires. And he's trying to like... he. Alex killing his father and becoming this character who is actively trying to get rid of Dream instead of a character who, like, lives with the fact that he has Dream undermines the pettiness of the character that is Dream. Because in the comics, Alex is not so much after, like, continually being like, hey, I want you to leave, just don't kill us. That Alex in the comics gives up much quicker than he does in in the show. He just consigns himself to living with this entity yes in the comics it's kind of it seems to be like once his father is dead he just kind of locks the basement up and says fuck it well he he does visit dream on occasion but it seems to be almost always at paul's behest yes so giving alex more agency is just chef's kiss and if that's the type of changes you're making that's just good writing so yeah yeah i think we both love this show yep that's fantastic that's uh the episode links aren't they're not entirely consistent the, f- uh, the, the first episode's like 55 minutes. The next episode's like 36 or 37. 37-ish. Yeah. But from there, it tends to bounce out around the 45 mark on average. It's between 35 and like 50 minutes. I would say it's between like 40 and 55. Yeah, so... The second episode is the shortest of the episodes. Yeah. Um. It very much tells the story it needs to in the episode and doesn't stretch the time for it, which is still one of my favorite parts about like streaming shows. Yeah. That they can just tell the story they need to tell in the time they have. The worst part about streaming was when they were like, oh, shows are an hour long? Shows are an hour long yeah having the ability to be like no this is the story we're telling that's all we need for it that's fine yeah once streaming services realized oh we don't have to abide by cable standards which i think a large portion of that is actually the fact that a lot of streaming shows just drop everything in bulk now yeah the mcu shows still tend to be roughly all the same length like they might vary in a few minutes here or there but nothing major i think moon knight saw quite a variety and moon knight saw more variety i would say but i think Overall, the MCU has been like fairly like it needs to be like She-Hawk. fifty minutes to like fifty-seven also, minutes. She Hawks out now. Yes, so we it need a- just came out. Yeah, we need a There's go- only one episode out right now. So, uh, or unless it had a two episode premiere, but I don't think it did. Hmm. So, maybe that's what we'll do for the second. Maybe not. Who knows? Maybe we don't want to do two comic materials back to back. We do so much comic stuff. I was looking through our feed and we do so much comic stuff. It's because the extreme saturation of superhero media. Yeah, that's fair. And also because we're nerds. Yeah. Anyways, thank you for flying with us. If you want to get in contact with us and tell us your opinions on Neil Gaiman, which if your opinion or anything other than best author alive, you're wrong. You can do that by reaching out to us at Copilot's Review on Twitter, or you can email us at copilotsreview at gmail.com. Or you can find both of those links as well as links to our Discord, our YouTube, our Patreon, our hidden email, all at copilotsreview.simplecast.com. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No hidden email. You can't get that without finding the episode where we talk yeah, about so, that. So, I mean, technically, you can find it from our website. You'd have to find oh, the episode. Actually, it is on that. It is on the website. Yeah. It, it is at copilotsreview.simplecast.com. And then it's in one of the episodes. I don't know which episode, but one of them. I honestly don't remember. Anyways, anyway. though, thank you for flying with us, and please fly again soon.